All right, turn with me there, if you're not already, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The title is Unspeakable Joy, and Peter is continuing to ponder what he brought up in verse 2, and that is the salvation we have. He speaks here in these coming verses of the mercy that has brought us this living hope. And this hope, he's going to tell us, is secure. That it's not, a, it's not subject to threats because it rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a finished work. The result of this salvation is that we have inexpressible joy. And that's where a lot of our exhortation and challenge and consideration is going to fall this morning is, are we people that are walking in unspeakable joy? Are we people of extreme joy? So let's begin reading uh, the first part of verse 3. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. So we'll stop right there. After speaking of this salvation in verse 2, Peter continues to talk about other aspects of our salvation. But he is in an attitude and a mode of worship. You see that in the very first word of verse 3. Blessed. This is a, a worship word. This is a declaration of greatness. And, and so he addresses this to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's thanking the Lord for initially, and there'll be a handful of things here, is our mercy, the mercy that he's shown. He's begotten us again by his abundant mercy, right? To, a, to this new life. He's begotten us again. We'll talk about that. But what we're going to find in this passage is that our salvation is a really, really big deal to God. And it ought to be a really big deal to us. It's, it's, we are the ones that are being saved, right? If he's made it a big deal and he's the Savior, how much more for the recipients of this salvation? Knowing where we were and what we we're um, destined for and, and what we've been redeemed to. But he says this salvation is according to his abundant mercy. And that's the kind of mercy we need. We need abundant mercy. We need the mercy that doesn't run out, that doesn't dry up, that doesn't um, say, you know what, I've shown you as much kindness and patience as I possibly can. I'm done with you. No, we need the one that's willing to show abundant mercy. And you know, when you think about mercy, the definition here. Um, is, is a Greek word, elios, and it, it means, and I love the way this first phrase is, the compassionating love of God, which condescends to the lowest state of the helpless, the weak, the impotent, the wretched, and the sinful. You know, that's, a, that's not a, like a glamorous list to be a part of right there, right? From the lowest state of the helpless down to uh, the wretched and the sinful, and many people will balk at this and say, ah, that's not who I am, I, that's not my life, and I, I don't want that. And, and that's, that's a response that Jesus dealt with. He says, listen, I didn't come for those who are well, I came for those that were sick. I came for those that were uh, helpless. I came for the weak. I came for the impotent, the wretched. I came for the sinful. And I wanted my mercy to flow into their life. And it is abundant, which means... It's not going to run out. How much mercy does God have? Well, the psalmist says that his mercy is as high as the heavens. So he chose, inspired the Holy Spirit, a, a, uh, a place in the universe that you could measure. 
However, we have not been able to find out how high the heavens are. And so it's, it's, a, it's something that goes beyond even our, our modern day knowing of how vast the heavens are. You're like, yeah, but once we find out, I'm pretty sure that have come to the top of that. That's all right, because guess what happens? Every morning, it's a restart on that. And this is the abundant mercy that God is showing to us. And this is how we enter into life. And what we see here is that this abundant mercy has resulted in new life for all who believe. His abundant mercy, verse 3, has begotten us again. Again suggests there was a time when we had life. And when is that time? When is that time? Now, you can think of it maybe in, you have a physical life, and now we're going to have a spiritual life. I think that's a, certainly a way to look at that. But I also think we can go back and say at the beginning of the creation of man, there was life. There was a vibrant relationship and communion, friendship between Adam and his creator. But man sinned against God and rebelled. And in the day that you sinned, the Lord said, you will surely die. And that life did die. But the second Adam, Jesus, has come again. And he has provided life for us. He died on the cross where God's abundant mercy is displayed and has brought us again to this living hope that we're going to talk about. So you have new life. I have new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A lot of people, when they think about coming to the Lord and, and becoming a Christian, they're like, I can't do it. There's too many things in my past. There's too many things, too many sinful ways in which I've lived and I've sought my own uh, path and I've rebelled against God. And, and I mean, I just don't think God could accept me. But, but you see here, you become a new creation. And everything that was a part of your old rebellious life becomes old and everything becomes new. Who doesn't like a do-over? I mean, who doesn't love it when you've failed in, the, in, you know, in many different ways in which we do this? And somebody says, I tell you what, we're just going to start all over. We're just going to act like that didn't happen. You know, if you're in class and everybody bombs and the teacher says, all right, I'm not going to count this one. We're going to do it again. And everybody's like, yes, except for the one person who got an A. But we don't care about you. We're caring about our grade. You're going to get an A the next time anyway, so don't worry about it. Like, that's not fair. I know that's why we like it, because it's not fair, because we get an opportunity to do it over. And God has given us the grand, amazing do-over. And it happens every day. That abundant mercy is a flow that comes to us every day. The more we understand the mercy of God, the easier it is for us to walk in the ways of the Lord. The more we think we are condemned and, and outed by God and he's stiff-arming us, the easier it is to just begin to, to live as somebody that's not in fellowship with the Lord. So this is, I mean, this, this passage is packed with so much information. But we begin there by just looking at this mercy, the abundant mercy that has resulted in us having new life. This is good news. Keep on going in verse 3 down to verse 5. It says, this abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're just going to take, not every single phrase, but we're going to just take you know, a, a, a phrase or two at a time here. So we have a living hope. So we've been begotten again by the mercy of God. And what has this mercy brought us into? A living hope. You know, hope is important. When people, aren't, when people don't have hope, man, despair sets in. And that is a difficult place to live. But having a living hope, well, this is one of the wonderful, amazing benefits of, of being in Christ. You know, what is hope? The word hope is, um, it's a Greek word, elpis, and it means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. So it's a forward-looking confidence. It's not a, oh, I hope so, or I wish. So, all right, we're in playoffs. My team, you know, I've said before, it's Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I know. But um, I did a bracket. I actually did two brackets yesterday with the family, and I did the bracket, which I thought would be a reality, and they did not win in my bracket. Okay, so that, that was the only good thing about the game yesterday. But then I, then I wrote another bracket just for the fun of it, and I called it my wish list. And they won. But, you know, people said, you didn't, you didn't you know, have Miami. And I'm like, no, I know the team. I knew they, I knew they weren't going to win. I had no, I mean, I was like, oh, I hope so. I mean, maybe somebody, you know, can get hurt like a bunch of people on the other team. And then maybe, <laughs> then maybe there's a chance that we'll, and so that's a, did I have hope? Well, I had a hope so kind of a hope, but I had no confidence that they were going to do it. So I didn't, I didn't select them. The hope that we have been given of life in Christ is not a, I hope so, or my wish list bracket, you know, that I know they're not going to win, but this is who I'd like to. No, this is that forward-looking confidence of the good and beneficial things that the Lord wants to bring us, namely salvation. But there are many things in this life that will cause you to feel hopeless. And um, we as believers, we have to be ready to not go down that road. I mean, work-related issues, that can make you feel hopeless. You know, um, I remember telling my kids when they were thinking about their jobs and their careers and what they're going to do, and, um, and I would tell them, I said, hey, the job you do does not make you the person you are. What you do is not who you are. And I said, you could get your dream job, but it only takes one person to make it a nightmare. So you get to plan for this dream job, and now you've got to work with that person, and that which you've planned for and hoped for becomes something you dread. So don't worry about what you're going to do. Uh, worry about who you are. And, and so you can have difficult work relationships. You can have the death of a loved one. You can have some kind of chronic illness or a, a report that says you don't have long to live. Or you could be in financial crisis. And all of these things can make you feel hopeless. <laughs> Listen, we're dealing with reality. Let's say it's like, yeah, like tomorrow, bankruptcy is final for me. It's not like I'm just a downer of thought. It's like that's going to be my reality. My reality is 
I'm, I'm not going to live long according to what the doctor said unless God intervenes in a miraculous way. And so you look at the reality and these things are there. And for many people, this causes hopelessness to settle into their life. But not for the believer. Because while one of those things or all of those things could be true, we have a living hope and our hope is not on things that change. Our hope is not in things that can go wrong, that can go be affected by one person. It is something that the Lord has done. And so we have a living hope, and the living hope is based upon, the we see in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's secure. The tomb was empty 2,000 years ago, and is still empty today, and it will be empty for all of eternity. Jesus has risen from the dead. Therefore, that abundant mercy that has begotten again, uh, begotten you again unto life, it is your confident expectation of God's goodness and kindness upon you. The empty tomb. I don't need to have something go this way or that way in any of those elements of life, seasons of life, aspects of life, or any others, to have joy because. I have my hope in the Lord, and he's risen from the dead. It's an empty tomb. Therefore, my hope is in a living Savior to fulfill what he's promised. It is significant and important that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. Paul said, if he isn't, we are to be pitied more than any other people on planet Earth. We're hoping in eternal life, and our hope is in a dead guy. That's sad. Your, your, your hope is in a guy who couldn't come back to life and you think he is going to be the one that gives you life? Um, years ago, um, I was at this church and this lady asked me, she goes, so are you uh, one of those Christians that believes in the Bible? I, I found it strange because she worked at the church and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of those. She goes, okay, so you believe like in Jesus Christ that he rose from the dead? And I go, absolutely. I go, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? She goes, well, I believe that if you believe it, that's important. That's important to you. And I said, so you don't necessarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead? She goes, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? I said, do you think you're going to heaven? She said, well, I certainly think I'm going to heaven. I said, how do you think you're going to heaven? She goes, well, I believe in Jesus. I said, but if he's in the tomb... How's he going to give you life? And she says, don't let me be a sermon illustration. Um, so I didn't mention her name. Uh, she's, she was old enough then and enough years have passed that she's, I doubt she's around. Um, but that's, you see the importance of an empty tomb? If the tomb's not empty, then we're hoping in something that can't be realized. But Peter's putting it in the positive, not the negative. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has come from the dead. He's alive. So the empty tomb is significant. It has a real impact on your life today, not just when you go to heaven. Because he's alive, you have a living hope. And because you have a living hope, we are going to read here that we should be those that are rejoicing Let's keep on reading there in verse 4. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So you have this living hope 
because Jesus has risen from the dead, and it is a certainty that you are going to experience the reality of it. Nobody's going to take it away from you. It's not going to fade away. It's, it's, you're, you're not going to show up and say, oh, we're sorry, we're overbooked. We, you know, Jesus, you, I mean, you know the story. He came to planet Earth, and they didn't like him. They killed him. We had no idea that there was going to be so many people that would respond, and so we don't have enough space, but there is another location for you. I mean, th that's not going to happen. You have a place in heaven that's reserved, and you're going to be welcomed in by the Lord himself. And, you know, this is incorruptible. It's undefiled. Man can't take that away from you. You know, Satan can't take that away from you. It is yours. You have a reservation. Your name is in the book of life. And when you get there, you will be welcomed in. And this uh, is, it goes on just to emphasize it. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's kept by God. The power of God keeps your salvation, keeps your place in heaven. And so you can, you can look at life with this living hope. You are not a hopeless person if you are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Many things don't turn out the way we plan. But heaven is a sure thing. You, one day, all of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, one day we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be looking at Jesus upon the throne. We're going to be singing with that heavenly throng throughout the ages. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and honor and glory. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be a part of that. You are gonna sit upon a throne that he has established and you will be a co-inheritor with Christ Jesus sitting and ruling. This is what scripture says. This is the promise of heaven. And it is something that you can have a confidence because it is the power of God that keeps it. He has the ability to finish what he's begun and his promise is true. But the last phrase of verse five says that this has come to us through faith, through faith. So how do you get this abundant mercy? What are the works you have to accomplish? How many spiritual deeds do you have to do? How many pilgrimages do you have to make? How many times a day do you have to pray? No, that's not how you obtain this living hope, this abundant mercy. You're helpless. I'm helpless. So helpless people have nothing to offer. And so we come to the Lord helpless and broken, and he gives us this salvation, but we receive it through faith. In other words, I put my trust and belief that Jesus who died on the cross for my sins is exactly who I need to trust in, and he will give me this living hope. So it's through faith. It's not performance-based payouts in the kingdom of God. It is his mercy. And what is the, so we receive it through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is a soon-to-be-realized hope. Uh, I think when he says ready to be revealed in the last time, I think he's talking about what, the church, big C, all believers who are alive at the time of the, the appearing of the Lord will receive. And I believe that is, we are living in the last days. We're living last times. This is what uh, it says in First John, that we're living in the last hour. So we are living in these times. 
um, which means this can happen at any moment. Um, and, you know, I, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, which has as one of its beliefs um, that it's imminent, that I believe the Lord could come back right now. I, I don't think I've got to wait to see the abomination of desolation to, to you know, count down the next 1,260 days before the second coming of Christ. I believe that this revelation where the church is caught up is going to happen ahead of time. And why do I believe that? I believe it because I believe the Lord has taught us in Scripture he can come back at any moment. You may agree, we maybe are off by you know, three years or seven years, but I think we have this common belief that all will receive that. But here's the, here's the point. When some hope is about to be realized, what happens to your emotions? They go up, don't they? It intensifies. You get more excited. I mean, there's just a lot of fun to watch little kids around Christmas time, isn't it? And that anticipation, man, it just gets, it gets going so much. But, but we know what it's like, too, the, the wedding day, um, maybe the birth of your child. There's, there's so many wonderful moments that happen in life, and you can think about what those are. And as the realization of that hope gets closer, the intensity of that hope, I mean, it's almost hard to contain it, isn't it? And that's what he's talking about. This is, it's about to be revealed. You're about to enter into this abundant mercy that has resulted in a living hope. And this is to intensify our excitement, is to bring to our, our view that which is about to take place. Look at verses 6 and 9. And I'm calling this section um, extreme joy. So all of this that we just talked about produces something in us. And here it is, verse 6. And this, what? This salvation that's ready to be revealed, that is secure in heaven, that is because of God's abundant mercy. All of this, in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So we, the joy that we are to have, the great rejoicing that should be present in our life is because of our salvation. The, the rejoicing with joy inexpressible is because of salvation. We are to be a people of extreme joy. You know, there's the extreme sports, right? There's the X games. But we're the X people. We're the extreme people of joy. This is, the, this is the exhortation that comes not in this one passage, although that would be enough. We're going to see a couple of other examples, but you could probably find dozens of places in Scripture where it calls us to this type of joy. Our inheritance and certain hope of heaven should be the cause of of great rejoicing in our life. It's not just an occasional head nod that he's referring to, where it's like, hey, we're going to heaven. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I don't know, what, did you just read this or something? Of course we're going to heaven. Yeah, I know that. It's not that kind of just intellectual acknowledgement that some good thing is coming. This is actually calling us to 
having an extreme joy, greatly rejoicing, a, a joy that's so intense, I can hardly even describe how great this joy is. So it's not just an occasional head nod to the truth that I'm going to be in heaven, but it's the attitude of a life-dominating exuberance. And this is where most of us go like, ah, yeah, you're right. That's what it says. But I'm not there. <laughs> I have other attitudes that seem to be present in my life far too often. I think there are too many voids of great joy within the body of Christ. It's, it's, this is challenging. And we should be evaluating our hearts when he says, in this you greatly rejoice. He, he, he doesn't say, and by the way, if you can, you should greatly rejoice. He states it as what we do. We do this. So the question then immediately comes to my mind, and am I? Or has this, you know, this joy and this salvation, this reservation of mine in heaven, have, has this truth of salvation become so common to me that it's become contemptible like the, I don't know if you read recently the book of Malachi, but read about it. And, and how they, they treated the table of the Lord as a, contem a contemptible thing. And they said, oh, we don't, we don't think it's contemptible. He goes, oh, yeah, you do. And they go, in what way have we despised the table of the Lord? He goes, you bring your lame offerings to me. You, you don't eval, uh, esteem and value the table of the Lord, your sacrifice. And I think in the same way, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we might be looking at the joy of the uh, looking at our salvation, and it's just become an average thing. It's just one other element in our life. But we're to be a people of great joy. Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2 says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us give a joyous shout to the rock of our salvation. So this is why we sing, right? Let us, be, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us sing him psalms of praise. So even the Old Testament was was functioning under this idea of having incredible joy. The Bible's explicit in its declaration that the followers of God are people of joy. When the announcement was made by the angels, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it says that it, you know, we should greatly rejoice because of the salvation that this little child that's about to be born was going to bring. It would be great joy to all people. Great joy. So it, it's a repeated word. Um, the angels in heaven, um, they rejoice at the salvation of a single individual. Look at what the prophet Isaiah said about our salvation. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. There's that phrase again, right? Greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And then he breaks into this uh, metaphor that describes... Um, probably what to him was the most joyful occasion he could think of. And he takes us into the wedding scene. And the wedding scene is, is usually dominated. Um, I, I have been to some ceremonies where it was, the, it was all about the pastor, not the, the couple getting married, which was very awkward. I called it a self-indulgent wedding service. It was really weird. But the focus of the wedding is the bride and the groom. And their joy is often, if, I mean, throughout cultures, is expressed in what they wear. 
And so that the joy of the moment, the, the, the height of that event is seen in what they wear. There's a lot of attention. And so this, the, the prophet says, in this you greatly rejoice. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's how we're supposed to be dressed. That's the attitude that is to clothe us. So again, we see this great rejoicing. If they are to rejoice in their salvation in the old covenant, how much more we who know the fullness of God's plan for salvation. They rejoiced in what God was doing and what God would bring. We rejoice in what God has done. We are the temple of the living God. We don't go to Shiloh or Jerusalem, right? We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We are the temple of God. And so if they can use phrases like shout and greatly rejoice, and the New Testament uses that same language of shouting and rejoicing or greatly rejoicing, it ought to be easier for us because the Spirit of God dwells within us. But maybe as a believer, that's not what's happening. Maybe the focus is on all of the other difficulties and trials that are going on in life. And maybe you feel like it's even, it gives you a pass to not have great joy because of all the difficult things that you are going through. And I will say to you, that is not what the Bible says. And we'll read it together in just a moment. So hold that thought. But don't allow the issues of this present life to still the joy that is secure in Jesus Christ. Right? Hold on. In John 4, 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, a woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water, this water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You're going to have a geyser. It's going to spring up. You're going to have this beautiful flow. You would much rather draw from a spring than, than from a well fresh flowing water, right? And, and Jesus says, if you drink of this water, it's going to make you thirsty again. And so if you are thirsty and you don't have this experience of, of uh, you know, water springing up into everlasting life, that bubbling up experience then you're probably drawing at the wrong well. And you're like, well, I'm saved. Well, then maybe you have, you, you stopped and you're, you're drinking other things. And it's, it's diminishing the joy of your salvation. And that's sad. You know, our salvation is such that it should be impressive to us. It should be amazing. And so it's the difference between you know, a water that springs up into everlasting life or a well. Um, you know, how many of you have seen Old Faithful? Okay, if you've gone to see Old Faithful, the geyser. And so, um, yeah, I went. I don't know that I'm going again. I mean, I, 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 I saw it, but I don't know what I, like, I had, like, built up a weird expectation of what this was going to be like. It's like, I don't, I don't know what I thought it was going was to happen when I saw it, but... I know it didn't happen because I'm like, that's it? I waited around. I could have had more time fishing rather than seeing this thing. And, and yet 
that's not the kind of springing up into everlasting life that we're talking about. The geyser that the Lord opens up in our salvation is one that should cause an abiding great joy in our life. I want to give I want to address five things quickly on how to live a life full of joy as a believer, especially if you're in that place where you're not. So number one, you need to acknowledge. That's the word. Acknowledge that anything short of great joy is less than what God has given. Acknowledge that anything short of great joy is less than what God has given. As I say that, I can hear the protest in the minds of some of you saying, I don't know about that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's reality. I don't know if that's really the way it's supposed to be. But, but that's what we're reading here. That's what the scripture says it should be. So I think there needs to be acknowledgement that great joy is ours. Secondly, we need to reject the lie that says I have no reason to be happy or joyful. Some of you are out there going, yeah, that's great. It's easy for you, Troy. You know, you have this and you have that, but you don't know my life. You don't know my circumstances. No, no. You got to reject the lie that says that you in Christ Jesus cannot have great joy. You got to decide you're done with that. Thirdly, so acknowledge, reject, reset. You got to reset your focus upon the salvation provided for you. You need to become one who is a, steward, a, a student of your inheritance. Allowing it to become a big deal. If it's a big deal to God, as we said earlier, it certainly ought to be a big deal to me. I'm the one that got saved. So you need to reset your focus upon that salvation. What are the other things you've been thinking about? Don't do that. Reset your focus upon the salvation. Number four, start rejoicing and praising even if you have to drag your sorry, sad self into the throne room of praise. Because if you sit around and say, well, I'll wait till I feel like it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. No, no, no. If you rejoice in the Lord for the salvation he's given to you, that's not hypocritical. You don't have to have emo the, the emotion of uh, happiness to be joyful. So we, we begin to take that step of faith. And I do believe that if you will acknowledge, reject, reset, and start rejoicing and even praising, you know, your sorry, sad self will come along. You know, he or she will begin to like, okay, I'm going to walk in this. I've determined I'm going to walk in joy, and I'm going to begin to walk in joy by praising the Lord in my prayer closet, or I'm coming to the, the service tonight, and I am going to crack open this fountain of joy, and I'm going to let it begin to erupt. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I don't know what that does for anyone. I'm talking about the real, genuine experience of understanding the greatness of your salvation. And then lastly, keep rejoicing and allow the habit of joy to dominate your life. So acknowledge anything short of great joy is less than what God has given. Reject the lie. Reset your focus. Start rejoicing and praising. And then keep rejoicing and allow this to become the new norm in your life. And it will be amazing. So if you're at that place where you don't walk in joy, then this is how you do this. A couple of more verses here. Um, in verse 6, we talk about trials not quenching the salvation joy. So I said earlier, some of you are thinking, well, you don't know what's going on in my life. Okay, that may be true. 
I, maybe I don't know what's going on in your life. And maybe if you told me, I would break in tears to hear of the hardship that you're going through. So it's not to say that it's not real, but look at verse six. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, here's your reality, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. So trials can grieve you, but it does not stop you from having great joy. And so you, you can't allow these things to dominate any longer. Verse seven, here's what these trials do. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My trials make my faith greater. And that increase of my faith becoming more valuable is going to result into, at the end of verse 7, uh, praise, honor, and glory. Now the question is, who's getting the praise, honor, and glory? Is it you and me receiving from the Lord a well done, my good and faithful servant? You've endured these trials. You've faithfully followed me. Here are the rewards that I have prepared for you. And I, that certainly is a, um, going to be an experience we have. The, the, the way it's written in the Greek, you can't determine whether it's writing about us receiving the praise or the praise going unto the Lord. And so you can find translations that translate it going in one, one way or the other. And you can also find commentators that are talking about it one way or the other. So we, we cannot be definitive. But I want to ponder the idea of what if it's the Lord receiving the praise, honor, and glory at my faith. In other words, I've gone through trials and I've endured. And now as heaven begins to hear of how I've endured, and they hear of my, I, I enter into heaven, and the story of Troy begins to be revealed of how God worked in his life to sanctify him and hold him through the trials and make his faith more valuable. And as the story comes to the end, all of heaven begins to break out in worship. Can you imagine if this is the scene, if this is what's going to happen, is that heaven begins to give praise, honor, and glory to Jesus because of what he's done in my life? Can you imagine how that is going to feel to watch heaven give Jesus exactly what he's worthy of because of what he's done in our life? It's going to be so amazing. That, that, if, that will be an experience to be had. But this is what the Lord is doing in our trials. He's making them even greater, uh, our faith even greater, right? You find a piece of gold in the earth and you pull it out. You can't use it like that. It's got, to be, it's got to go into the fire. It's got to be tested so that it can separate you know, the gold from the other materials. Trials work in our life to separate the valuable faith from the things that are not valuable. And because faith is so important, I can rejoice in the trials I'm going through because he's making something great of it all. Lastly, Verses 8 and 9, it says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So there it is again. Greatly rejoicing, and now here you rejoice. What kind of rejoicing? With a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, it's hard to even put into words how joyful I am. It's hard to put into words. It's hard for me to express how great this salvation is. And this is our experience that we have in Christ. 
We need to walk it out. Now, he says that this, this great joy is, is found even among those who have not seen Jesus but still love him. To Thomas, who said, Lord, I, I just want to see. And uh, the Lord says, well, Thomas, you get to see, and that's great. But blessed is he who does not see and still believes. And that's who we are. We don't see the Lord face to face, but the faith that he has placed within us is so strong. We believe in him, and it's developed a love in our hearts for our Savior. And that is the work of God. And the result is we receive the end of our faith, and that's why we're able to express. If you're waiting for life to just kind of finally be fair, or you're waiting for your payday to come in, or you're waiting for that problem to be resolved, or for this thing to not take place. You know what? God intervenes, and he does things like that. But there are plenty of things that are going to come just as they look like they're going to be. And we have to determine, what kind of worshiper am I going to be? Am I going to be like, you know, a spiritual Eeyore where, oh, okay, yes, it's all right, you know, or a chicken little, the sky is falling, or a cat, you know, a glass half empty? What are we going to be? But we have every biblical reason and a reality that we've begun to experience to be people of extreme joy. And if you're not, when I'm not, it's less than what God has called us to. And, you know, if you're waiting, well, I'm just waiting to be overwhelmed with the emotion. Stop. Stop waiting to be overwhelmed with the emotion. Be obedient and begin to give shouts of praise. Begin to give him glory. Begin to rejoice in your God. And allow that spring, he said, that would, um, the, you know, this salvation that would spring up into everlasting life. Allow that thing to become unclogged in your life. And I want to be clear on this. It's not everybody's... Great rejoicing has to look the same on the outside, right? There are those that, you know, we don't have to. Well, there's some people that have a little man or woman doing a dance on the inside, and they are completely rejoicing. But there's others of you, you're actually dancing. You know, I mean, you're actually doing the dance. And the other person's like, I wouldn't do that. There's some of you that just, it's, you know, you're much more expressive with your emotions. It doesn't mean it's any less real for the person who maybe is a little more subdued. So I'm not saying let's turn this into emotionalism. I'm just saying this, this deep abiding joy ought to be present in all of our lives because we're going to heaven. We win in Christ Jesus. We know how the story ends. We've read the back of the book. We see the final chapter. You're going to heaven. But right now, we are to live with joy inexpressible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this salvation you've given to us. And I think, sadly, sometimes we do end up just giving an intellectual head nod to, yeah, that, that's good. That's good news. I'm going to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And, and Lord, there's not a great rejoicing. There's not an abiding exuberance that we are people of redemption. And so, Lord, help us this morning. Help us this morning, we pray, to dig out that, that spring that's become clogged up with expectations that don't deliver. I want to give you a moment right now just in prayer, and I don't think there's many of us in here as believers that don't probably need to do a little bit of repenting right now. It's like, Lord, I'm sorry. I've not been walking 
with great joy. I've been grumbling and I've been complaining. I've been kicking the dog and I've been so upset and I've been mad. And it's not joy inexpressible. It's anger inexpressible. It's sadness inexpressible. Oh, we're grieved by trials. Yes, that, that, we feel them. But it doesn't diminish the joy inexpressible because it's reserved in heaven. It's undefiled, undefiled, incorruptible. It's going to be yours one day in heaven. But it's yours right now. And right now, the word is joy inexpressible. If you're here and you've never received this abundant mercy and you know that you're a helpless sinner before God and you want to be forgiven, then talk to him right now. Say, Lord, forgive me. I want your mercy. I need your mercy. I want to be a new creation. As you call out to the Lord and tell him that, he will save you. He will redeem you. And this spring of everlasting life is going to begin to well up within you as well. Thank you, Lord, you do not disappoint. Thank you, Lord, that we're not just trying to say positive things in circumstances that are really bad. No, Lord, we have a real amazing salvation, a reality. We thank you for it. Help us to become people of joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.